Welcome to the Mad Mum Luke's. My name is Mohammed. My name is Amir. My name is Sim. Uh, today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Fahad Khan. Dr. Fahad Khan is a psychologist with a doctorate in clinical psychology and a master's degree in biomedical sciences. He, he's also a hafiz of the Quran and has studied Islamic studies with various uh, scholars in the Muslim world and the U.S. He is currently a student at Dar al-Qasim, continuing his Arabic and Islamic studies. He also serves on the ed- editorial board for Muslim World Affair, an online peer-reviewed journal. He has conducted research studies on help-seeking attitudes of Muslim Americans as well as the effects of acculturation and religiosity on psychological distress. The primary focus of his clinical training has been with children and adolescents suffering from serious mental illness. However, he has a broad range of experiences dealing with individuals from all age groups and cultural backgrounds. Uh, Dr. Fahan, welcome. Good to have you here, brother. Um, Welcome. Yeah, it's really nice to have you here. Um, I want to start with why psychology? What what got you there? Actually, so none of it was planned, right? Uh, When I look back now of where I began and how I ended up here, it just kind of like worked itself out. So, you know, I was pre-med, just like every other day. (laughs) I'm sure half of you guys were (laughs) pre-meds here. But I, for some reason, I don't know why I chose psychology as my major. And I still don't, I mean, I was thinking about just a few days ago, like, why did I pick my psychology as a major? I could have chosen sociology. I could have chosen computer um, science because I like, even then, you know, could have stayed with pre-med. But uh, I chose uh, psychology. And then um, when I graduated, I didn't get into medical school because I'm pretty sure I wasn't cut out to be a doctor or at least a physician. Um, so then I, um, you know, then I, uh, the only job I could get as a psychology major was as a counselor at hospital. And so that's where I kind of started getting my initial exposure to like working with uh, patients, uh, you know, severe mental illnesses. And then from there, then my interest started developing still as a pre-med. And uh, two years after that, then I uh, decided to go get my PhD, my doctorate. And so that's when you decided you wanted to be a full-fledged psychologist. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Oh, that's awesome. So what's your day-to-day? Um, are you meeting with people? Do you What kind of work do you do? So uh, full-time, I'm the deputy director at Khalil Center. Uh, this is a, a, a psychological treatment center. Uh, we have three offices in Illinois, one in California. So we do uh, some prevention work, like uh, workshops, seminars, etc. Uh, intervention, which is like... Uh, direct therapy, so individual therapy, family therapy, couples counseling. Uh, and then we do some Islamic spiritual um, wellness as well. Um, so we do halaqat and support groups, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's my uh, core of what I do on day-to-day. Um, I also teach. So I teach at College of DuPage undergraduate courses and then Concordia University of Chicago in their graduate program. I'm interested in the in what you said about, about the Islamic, uh, the halaqat. What is that? So actually, uh, so at Khalil Center, we have Human, who's the executive director, and I'm the deputy director. Human handles most of that component because he's more, you know, uh, well-versed in religion. He's been a student throughout his life. So there's uh, Salat al-Salam, that's like once a month they have, you know, on a Thursday. Um, They also have uh, halakat uh, related to like studying. So on, on every Sunday, for example, we do a didactic, and part of that is we study something religious. So from Ghazali... Uh, recently, we've been studying a book uh, called um, uh, Al-Fatan Wal-Balaya Al-Mihan wal I can't remember the Arabic title, but it's the trials, the, the benefits uh, associated with trials and tribulations. Um, and so that's current, like, kind of like the, the for us to become more self-aware and then to be able to implement that into therapy for our clients. 
Oh. Is it Izzuddin Abdul Salam's work? Yeah, yeah, Izzuddin. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wait, yeah. Wh- what is that? If you don't mind explaining for <laughs> for me or people who don't know. So it's uh, so basically Izzuddin Abdul Salam. I don't know when it was written, but like a, a long time ago, he came out with benefits. Of tri- so when we have a trial tribulation and we have a problem, like somebody gets fired, somebody has a divorce, you know, somebody gets in an accident, we always think of the negative aspects of it. So what he did was he highlighted the positive aspects. So starting with like the number one was recognizing, um, I think it said, ma'rifatu uh, wa uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Lord and His majesty. And then ma'rifatu ubudiyati wa kasriha. Like that, the, that's number two, that recognizing yourself as the servant uh, and the aspect, the, the, uh, the neediness or the, you know, the, the lowliness that comes with being a, the, the servant. And he goes on and on and talking about how ikhlas for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and other benefits associated with trials and tribulations to make it better for the person so the, the person doesn't feel like, you know, it's all negative. Well, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh-oh. A lot of a lot of young people have, uh, have a great deal of difficulty dealing with trials and tribulations that are happening in their life. And mm-hmm. a lot of times it's usually causing them to a lot of doubt in, in their belief. Through your study, so what have you come away with it? I mean, I can give you my own personal example uh, because the reality is when we get people in my office, they usually are either going through the trial, right, or they've gone through and they're still suffering from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I have one client now who, um, well, he, he broke up with his girlfriend and he wanted to marry her, but it's been almost a year now and he, he's difficult for him to get over it. Yeah. Um, so by the time he, he gets better, he probably won't be coming to me. Right. So I usually don't see people when they get, when they're better already. They're by, by that time, they're out of my you know, office, out of my um, life. Uh, alhamdulillah, I'm, you know, I'm happy for them. But I can tell you from my own personal example, though, uh, whenever someone is going through a difficult time, it's very difficult in the way our mind works and recurring thoughts and, and the whole CBT model. We can talk about it, too. But the, whole, the way it works is that you constantly bring yourself down. You don't think about anything good that comes out of it. But when we look back, like if I look back at the times that I've had difficulties in my life, I mean, alhamdulillah, man, I'm here today because of those times. And I learned so much from those times and everything turned out to be OK. Isn't that exactly it? That. Our experiences make us who we are now. Mm-hmm. So, so many difficult situations that we've de- dealt with in our life that we couldn't be, couldn't imagine handling current uh, life and our surroundings or work. We can't, we couldn't have handled it if we didn't experience what we had in mm-hmm. the past. Is there a way to train yourself for that? To uh, to see the good in things? Uh, you know, like for example, you get into a car accident, and where is the good in that? How did, how how are you supposed to see the good in that? I mean, it's difficult, uh, but the the so there's ways you can do that, right? For example, um, there is a ninth century scholar, uh, and his name is Al Balqi. Uh, uh, I think Abu Zaid Al Balqi. <laughs> we were just talking about that before he came here. Really? <laughs> yes. So he he in his book he talks about this one thing which I do I practice with my clients. So after they've gotten better, or these clients are maybe not suffering with something like that, uh, is to uh, take happy thoughts and happy memories and store them. Right, so you're a positive person. So you're if you're constantly aware of the goodness around you, if you're constantly aware of all the blessings that you have. When something like a car accident happens, you're like, okay, you know what, it happened, alhamdulillah. But you know what, I got all these things here. But most of the time, we don't we don't notice the positives because you know we're enjoying it. You know, I got a, a bowl full of chips here. Where people are every three seconds somebody dies in the world, right? But I can just pick up a chip and just you know survive, alhamdulillah. I'm not noticing it. 
because it's something positive. But when something negative happens, say I was hungry right now and you had chips and, and you wouldn't give them to me, you know, I would notice that, right? I'd feel bad about it. Uh, so if we start noticing the positives on a regular basis and keep storing these positive memories, positive thoughts, eventually I think I think you can. Uh, still, though, you will still feel some negativity, but at least you'll be able to get get out of it quicker. Um, one of the uh, I was listening to a podcast not too long ago by Tim Ferriss, and um, he has this thing where at the end of every day or whenever you w- or you wake up, you write all the good things that happen. Um, are, are you familiar with this? Mm-mm. Um, so you write down all the things you're pretty much, uh, uh, grateful for, which you're happy about. And it's supposed to have some kind of positive, uh, impact, um, on, on you, on your psychology. Um, to be honest, I've been too lazy to ever try it, but yeah, I was just wondering if you, if you were ever familiar with that. Um, I don't know. I feel like, would that be helpful? You think? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, being aware of the blessings that you have and not only that, I usually go a step further, not for myself. I mean, sometimes I do that myself too. But especially with my clients who have uh, chronic depression. So we sit there and identify like positive memories. So, for example, I have one client now who has negative recurring thoughts. And so, like, you know, I asked him, he's actually a young boy. He's a, I think he was he's nine or eight year old. And uh, I asked him, like, what did you do last week? And, you know, he said he went to his cousin's house. And so, okay, so what was the day like? You remember what you had for breakfast? What were you wearing? What was the temperature like? You know, what did you guys eat for lunch? Uh, what did you do then? How did you enjoy it? How much, you know, did you like it? So what you're doing is you're taking that memory that was fresh in mind and consolidating it and storing it as like a positive memory, right? So a lot of the things that we remember are negative. And so what we're doing is remembering the positives. Mm. Uh, so that's a practice. What you're saying, you know, um, making a list or identifying. I've done that with what, a couple of my clients as well who have a lot of uh, self-esteem issues. Like I'm not a good mother. You know, I, my life sucks. You know, then you identify the things that you're good at, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a good cook, for example, or, you know, I'm a good teacher, all those things. And then you identify, remind yourself of those. Yeah. And it helps. About the guy you were saying um, who broke up with his girlfriend, um, a Muslim kid, right? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you play that? Uh, I'm sure there's first off, you're a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. But then you're also, you know, you practice the dean. How do you how do you? What do you do about balance the between the professionalism yeah. and the religion portion? Exactly, exactly. You can't just be like, "Oh, you know, it's haram. You shouldn't have had her in the first place." <laughs> so, <laughs> how do you how do you navigate that? I mean, so I look at it from diff- different perspectives, right? Um, I'll give you another example, which is kind of similar. Um, uh, I had w- I once had this a female client contact me. She's like, "You know, I want to come to the Khalil Center," uh, and we try to separate the male and female. So the males are are you know given to the male counselors and vice versa, but. You know, she said, no, I want to see. Okay. So she comes in, she said, she said she was Muslim on the phone, um, comes in and she's wearing shorts, like, you know, and she's sitting there and like, I had a reaction to it. I'm like, okay, like I I should tell her something. But then I realized that she knew where she was coming. You know, she knows that this is the Khalil Sarandh, there's Muslims working here. You know, Human has a huge beard. I got one, you know, it's kind of small. (laughs) You know, uh, we have a dress code. Women are wearing hijab. Men have to have their shirt out. You know, like it's pretty obvious that this is an Islamic center. You have to take your shoes off to come into the office, right? So if a person comes in who has a girlfriend or a drinking problem or, you know, is away from Islam, there's a reason. So if we shun them away immediately, if we sit there and just judge them, like, dude, you know, you're supposed to, not supposed to be having a girlfriend, then you've kind of just, you know, shut all the doors. Then they're not going to talk. Then it's beyond, you know. You're cornering them and you're putting them in a defensive mode. Yeah, you know? yeah. So yeah. so that, so that it's a, more of a client-centered environment. So whoever comes in whatever problems you know we don't judge 
you know, and if we have a reaction to it, that's usually something we, t- we do consultation supervision. Uh, I have my own therapist, by the way, I see like maybe once a month or so. If I'm having a lot of negative reaction towards my clients, I'll go talk to my therapist. But, you know, we we're ideally you're not supposed to judge them. How, now, a lot of our young listeners, they have they're a friend of somebody who's going through a lot of difficult problems and their friend will come to them and ask them for advice or some kind of help. What are some basic things they can do just to be a good listener and be a good friend and help them out of? And without making matters worse, if I can add to that, because sometimes we try to counsel people and we can make matters worse uh, if they have certain imbalances. So is there like a uh, general layman's survival guide of counseling each other (laughs) as human beings? Yeah. General principle. And I don't want, you don't have to have, you know, 10 bullet points right off the top of your head, but you know, I, I mean, the most basic element of therapy is empathy, right? Empathize. So, you know, whenever somebody comes in, and one of the problems, especially men or boys have it, is that we try to fix things and we try to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't work out in marriages, especially because our wives come to us and, you know, they're telling us about their day or the problem they're having. We're like, why don't you try this? Why don't you do this? You know, so the basic uh, element of empathy is you sit and you listen. You just hear them out, whatever they got to say, don't judge. If they're coming to you, there's a reason, right? They're looking for somebody. They found you. Mm-hmm. They think you're capable of, of hearing them out without judgment. Uh, just do that, you know, mm. just sit and listen to them. And that in itself, that's like 90% of therapy, honestly. You know, I agree with you 100%, man. There was a, an uncle that came to me about his son, and uh, he was just talking to me, and I didn't say one word. I think I told you guys this before, too. I didn't say anything. I was just listening to him. And after talking to me for about 40 minutes, he finished. He's like, thank you. It made me feel so much better. And I really didn't say anything. You're just like, okay, mm-hmm. kind of like those just, you know, small reactions like that, yeah. you know, and it is, you know, empathy and just listening is a very strong tool. Mm-hmm. And, the, and this is Sunnah Rasulullah. So yes. I mean, uh, we know the story of the, the woman who was leaving the city and, you know, he, the Prophet was helping her out and he's just hearing her. I mean, she's talking bad about him. He could have easily defended himself like, you know, you're talking about me. I'm not saying all this, you know, but he just heard her, just didn't say anything. Yeah. He didn't even mention his own name, you know, at the end when she found out. So um, it's really powerful uh, tool just to listen to somebody and not just listen like, oh, God, you know, here, here this guy, you know, here he goes again. But to like sit there and like have some compassion, like, OK, I want to hear you out. And that's why therapy is actually really tough. Like we don't see eight clients a day. Like if we have an eight hour work day. It's usually like four or five, maybe tops, mm-hmm. because uh, it's hard sitting there and trying to listen to empathize with somebody for an hour or 50 minutes and then try to do that again with another person and time after time. And then you have sometimes couples, one has its own problems, its own perspective, and the other one has his own, her own. And then you try, you have to empathize with both of them, you know, so it's, you know, it's challenging. You said a key word and it's called empathize. Uh, a lot of people end up doing a lot of sympathizing and not empathizing. So basically, if you can uh, uh, walk in their shoes and if you can let them know that you understand what they're going through without saying things like, I know exactly how you feel, right? That's not empathy because mm-hmm. you don't know how exactly what they're, how they're feeling, right? It doesn't matter if you could be in the same situation, but like, I could understand, man, that's, that's tough. Like, wow, that's difficult. Well, you know, like, uh, so what did you do, right? Oh, wow. You know, like, how did you, how did you work that out or uh, you know, just kind of like being there with them as they're trying to explain their problem. That's empathy. Exactly. Um, earlier you said something about um, you once a month, you go see a therapist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, that's really interesting, actually. I've never, um, you don't really hear much about like an actual psychologist actually going to see another psychologist. Um, why? So just as you go see a, a doctor every year 
for a physical checkup, you know, in case something goes wrong, like if there's something happening deep down inside in your blood or, you know, you got some infection going and you don't know about it and the doctor's going to do a blood test or, you know, do a physical and find out. Uh, that's what I do. Uh, I mean, therapy is supposed to be for that purpose. Um, so there's a lot of people out there who just go see a therapist that don't have any problems. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I don't have any problems. You know, I don't have any like significant issues going on with my personal life, career, marriage, nothing like that. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. I mean, beyond the basic issues that everybody has. Um, but, uh, you know, I think uh, a, when I go sit, talk to the therapist, um, that the therapist is helping me recognize some of the potential issues that may come up. You know, because now you're talking to a, a person from who's who's empathizing with you from their perspective and who's able to see some of those, um, you know, some of those issues that may come up. So you're protecting. It's more of prevention rather than like intervention. How does Islam play in all this? Have you learned anything from, you know, have you applied Islamic principles to your uh, psychology? As far as the, the principles are concerned, um, I, I think what I do is I help people sometimes uh, uh, protect their faith, their iman. So I'll give you examples, right? Um, uh, a woman uh, came to me she was severely suicidal wanted to kill herself I mean killing yourself is a sin right and so you know by helping her through that you know it, it kind of like uplifted her iman and so she she didn't do she didn't kill herself so I, I mean I I kind of helped her save herself I, that was kind of like the way I looked at it right couples so I had one husband who was ready to cheat on his wife because he had so many problems Right, he was like he was actively seeking out prostitutes uh, from Craigslist, trying to find somebody so he can, you know, have an affair. Um, so, you know, that's that's another sin, you know. So, like through therapy, through that marital counseling, he humbly didn't do that. I mean, they still had significant issues, but that wasn't on his mind. Um, I have one, uh, or I have actually three of the different clients who have similar issues. But uh, this one kid who's uh, half is a Quran, but he actually had become an atheist. And so it's been almost over a year now, and over time I've kind of guided him back. You know, so now he's able to pray maybe once a day but and read some Quran, but at least he's not an atheist. Mm-hmm. You know, so. so do people come to you specifically for religious counseling? Like they know they're coming in for religious-based or inspired counseling, so you would work with that accordingly. And then you have other people that are coming for a general, uh, you know, so as I said earlier, it's client centered. So okay. we don't we don't like if the client comes in and says I have this problem. Like uh, I had one client who uh, drives from very far away, and he had problem with pornography and a specific religious issue because he's like, you know, I know it's haram and I feel bad and I'm sinning and I'm praying. So help me, right? So he came with that kind of like agenda. Mm. Um, so whatever the person brings, we go we go with that, right? And so we do assess for religiosity. We do bring it up. Um, and then if the person's not comfortable, we won't, you know, push it. Right? What, are because the, what are some of the biggest, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, what no. are some of the biggest issues you you deal with? I mean, it's hard to say what's big. You know, there's like different areas. So mm-hmm. individual Well, he mentioned something about suicidal. I mean, yeah, I don't think I mean, it's worse huge. than that, right? I mean, depends, right? Like, well, actually, it's all like, it's subjective, right? Mm. You know, I had a bigger reaction to the, there's three uh, kids that I, I saw. One of them I don't see anymore, but two of them I've seen right now. They both went to mother or son. They're having severe like psychological social issues because of that. And having been gone to a mother or son, being a half as myself, that part like hit me the most. It hit me the hardest. And so that for me is the bigger problem, you know, that uh, these kids, there's a kid who's supposed to be a Hafiz, he's, he's an atheist, like this completely doesn't, you know, mind boggling for me. So as, th- as a therapist, are you in, in the case where the kid wants to become an atheist or he has become an atheist, are you pulling refutations? Are you trying to refute him or are you actually trying to treat the underlying cause which has caused him to go down that road? 
So I can tell you about a little bit about him. Um, he's in high school. And the reason he went and became an atheist wasn't because he like sat down and researched and he was like, you know, I figured it out and, you know, Islam or there's no such thing as religion. He actually had a lot of anger and resentment towards his parents for putting him through hifs. And so when he uh, went through that, um, he, he had a lot of anger, right? And so that anger was either going to be directed towards his parents um, or towards that which they were pushing him towards, like the Quran mm. in this case, or Islam. And so, um, so he, you know, he wasn't going to hate his parents and 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 like not talk to them or leave. And he's too young to do that anyway because they take care of him. Mm. So he chose the other, which was you know, um, anger towards Islam and and Quran. For people seeing uh, a therapist or a psychologist, is it is this still looked down upon, or is that changing? There's still a lot of stigma. I mean, uh, we still have clients. I had one client tell me. Uh, this is during Ramadan, so he's like, "Can you see me like when nobody's there?" So we had a session like after Taraviyah, like twelve o'clock, you know, because uh, he was like afraid that somebody's going to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get people. There's still stigma out there. Uh, it is changing, but I, I feel like I wish there was you know more that could be done. This is why I'm not hesitant in sharing that I have a therapist. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I want other people, even if you're completely fine and don't have no problems, to just go find somebody. I mean, you can you can get therapists for you know really cheap if you have insurance there's no problem so yeah Sheikh Hamer always is uh, telling everyone to get a therapist mm. yeah and I tell I tell people too you know there's many times I just seek out a therapist um, and uh, just to encourage people you know because when you're on the mimbar or you're giving people a dars um, you have to cure their hearts also you know mm. and, and physically um, but I want to switch gears a little bit because there's this amazing person that you mentioned, Balhi, which actually intrigues me. And I don't know he intrigues you. And you're the one who introduced him to me a few years ago and how that kind of inspired you uh, to take that path of uh, a, a type of spiritual healing, you know, infused in your uh, uh, therapy. Can you just tell us a little bit a little bit about him and how you were inspired by him, how you found him? And um, what benefits, because he is a scholar of Islam, right? And, uh, you know, we just, if you could just shed some light on that. Sure. So uh, this kind of ties into the other question you asked me about earlier, too, uh, about having uh, problems in your life. So uh, when I was in grad school, uh, finishing my doctorate, uh, towards like the, the second half of it, um, I was, so my plan was to become a health psychologist, because that's like, you know, I had a master's in biomedical sciences. I was pre-med before. So it just kind of made sense, right? They combined the two of like together and I was like, okay, I'll go with it. Um, so I was doing an, uh, an externship and um, in that externship, I got terminated, right? And, uh, you know, whatever the reasons were, I had some issues of my own and the supervisor didn't like me, you know, in any case. Um, so I got terminated and I was at the almost at the verge of getting kicked out of my program. That's how bad it was. And so that was a real difficult time for my life. I mean, I thought like the world was going to end because here I, I work towards a degree. I'm towards the end. You know, I really want to do it and I'm good at it, too. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to complete it. And um, so at that moment, and just like all of us, when we have problems, we, you know, we pray more and we do more dhikr and we do more Quran. So I started doing that. And when I was doing that, um, uh, not only did I find myself attaching a lot to uh, the, the deen and, and the Quran and, and the hadith, uh, but also to other elements, like then I was looking into Islamic psychology. I was looking into, uh, I started reading Alam Iqbal a little bit more. You know, a lot of his poetry. One of your passions, Alam Iqbal. Awesome <laughs> poet. Is. Who is that? Yeah, really. So uh, Iqbal is a, a poet from uh, uh, the uh, the Indian subcontinent. Uh, he was uh, born there. Um, he traveled to other areas. Like he got his doctorate from, I believe, Germany. Um, he lived in England for a while. 
um, and he went back. He's a poet and a philosopher, and so he's oh, okay, written okay. a lot of poetry. So I started reading that, and that really you know pulled me out of that. And when I got pulled out of my my problems, Alhamdulillah, everything got resolved. Uh, that's when I said, you know what, this is what I really want to do. So I started reading more, uh, you know, Razi and, and Ghazali and Balkhi. Balkhi was introduced to me actually by uh, Human, and uh, he had written about it. Um, and so we, you know, he, there's a small translation of a small book by Malik Badri, um, and the book is called Sustenance of the Soul. It's on Amazon, uh, and that's a translation of some of Balkhi's work. Um, then there's other uh, stuff that's going on now, like for example, recently one of our staff members from uh, California released uh, uh, an article on Balkhi, where Balkhi talked about obsessive compulsive disorder. In ninth century, he had identified this as a disorder and had the symptoms listed out, and they're the same exact symptoms that you find now in literature. Uh, and the credit that's you know taken usually by like 17th, 18th century, you know Western scholars, he had figured that out like ages ago. And so you know it's really amazing to have someone like that in our in our culture, our history. And so it's like it makes me really proud. So that's where I kind of got inspired. And then I saw that a lot of people were doing this work. So I met up with Human, and I'm like, you know, like what he was doing at Khalil Center. It was really small at the time. Like I I want I want to join and you know do this. And so th- he's been helping to educate me, and we're kind of just doing this together. Very nice. Um, I, there's this trend towards uh, mindfulness. Uh, do you, uh, have you heard about this? Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? I have my own opinion about it, but I want to hear I want to hear your thing about Wait, it. Wait, what's your opinion? I want to. Know your um, I don't know. <laughs> I I think it's really cool. Actually, I listened to a few things by John Kabat Zinn, who's a who's an MD, who's a psychologist or whatever he is, and so he has this um, he has this thing where it's just basically you kind of just sit and it's just quiet, and you try to focus. It's different. I mean, the, the, he has he has a whole CD set and everything, but you kind of just focus on. On, so on like one thing, for example, you focus on breathing or you focus on a certain part of your fingers or, or your hands or something like that, right? And um, and I would do it. I would actually do it, try and do it maybe two, three times a week. And I'd notice like whenever I do it, like I'm, I'm so much clearer, like everything is a lot more sharp. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I find really interesting is actually um, I find Salah to be almost the same thing. Like uh, where's just kind of, you know, when, you, when you're praying on your own, it's just kind of, it's like really quiet. It's kind of serene, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you walk around, I mean, you're you're hit by so much information. I mean, you open up your computer, I mean, just bam, you go to Reddit. I mean, there's there's a million different things you're learning every day. Um, but I also find that it's, it's very interesting. It's like a retreat, uh, retreat almost, you know, you kind of just just quiet, you know, kind of just shut out the world. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I mean, and, you know. I'm, it's like you know, essentially kind of like meditation is, right? It's a meditation, meditation is exactly what it is, exactly what it is. Um, what, what What is your opinion of this? So, I mean, mindfulness is definitely very helpful because what ends up happening is we become really automatic, like robotic, you know, and we, we don't notice even some of the things around us. So, for example, anger is one of those issues that happens because we don't notice ourselves and our emotions. So something's happening and we're getting anxious and now we're getting a little bit more mad and now we're getting angry and we're not noticing all this. So people just say, oh, he just blew up. You know, I didn't realize like, uh, you know, I go from like one to a 10 without even realizing, you know, that I'm that angry. And so we work with them to be more mindful. So it's become, it's being here and now in the moment, recognizing your surroundings, being aware of yourself. You know, for example, he said breathing, but it's just it's just the act of being mindful, basically, just like the, as the term suggests. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely is very helpful. It's a very it's a core component of of some of the cognitive therapies out there, and we teach our clients that. Uh, and is, no, go ahead. Isn't that um? Wouldn't the prophet also do that whenever he'd uh, you know so I was saying whenever he'd retreat to the mounds, 
you kind of just be be alone and kind of just be by himself. Yeah, I mean, the amazing that. thing is that's how he initially got prophethood, right? Uh-huh. And uh, one of the one of my favorite things to discuss as far as Sirah is concerned is where Rasulullah Sallallahu he before his prophethood was searching for his creator, right? Which is why Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala mentioned Surah Duha, وَوَجَدَكَ ضَالًا فَهَدَى, right? And what that actually means is your creator. He found you, dal. And dal over here is a linguistic meaning because dal originally means to be to be astray, but over here it means that you are kind of lost and you're looking for a proper path, right? Fahada and Allah guided you, right? So Muhammad sallallahu knew, and Abu Bakr and Muhammad sallallahu by the way, were the only ones um, that never committed shirk pre-Islam and never drank alcohol pre-Islam, right? And them two were protected very well by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before Muhammad's prophethood. But he knew what was hap- what, what he was around and, you know, uh, shirk and the idols and whatever uh, injustice that was happening. He knew that, that there was something very wrong with this picture and he knew there was Allah, but he was looking for a path to be guided, right? So this quietness that he would be in the cave would actually help him concentrate and ponder upon the creation that Allah uh, had provided as evidence for us to lead us to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And uh, and that's what Surah Al-Duha is. So for our listeners, if you get an opportunity to read about Surah Al-Duha and Alam Nishrah, it's basically the communication between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Muhammad sallallahu and the journey that he actually went through to find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is a phenomenal journey, mm-hmm. right? And uh, how did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give him guidance? He gave him prophethood, Right. Um, so that's something really amazing. Didn't a, uh, a great scholar like Al Ghazali do that? Do the same thing. He went to meditate for a long time. Well, Ghazali accomplished so many, so many things. But when you were mentioning, you know, um, uh, documenting positive things that you did throughout mm-hmm. the day and uh, uh, what you can do better uh, in the future, there's a concept, uh, you know, that the scholars uh, um, have developed based on evidences in the Quran and the Sunnah, which is, you know, muraqaba, uh, which is uh, doing all the, you know, thinking about all the things that you've done throughout the day, and muhasaba, same exact thing, you know, taking account of yourself um, and trying to change those things, right? Because there's, no, what do you mean, there's many the things. negatives or the positives? Negatives. Too? And okay. you look at positives too, right? But um, as far as negatives are concerned, for instance, and, you know, you could definitely shed light on this also. Um, but there's many things that we do throughout the day. And when you wind down, there's either things that are very prominent where you're like, man, I was, I was way out of line when I did that. Mm-hmm. That happens to all of us, especially uh, all of us, right? Especially when you're tossing and turning yeah. at night. Well, there's that's, that's there. That's a sign that's given to us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because there's no such thing as a coincidence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that to us again so we can solve that problem, right? And it happens to be at nighttime where everything's peaceful, mm-hmm. right? So we have to deal with that. Once we deal with that, we say, you know what? I can't do that anymore. Or I have to go apologize to that person. Um, that's number one step towards progress, right? So you've dealt with that. And that's kind of when you, if you really think about it, I don't know about you guys, but when I deal with things or I'm tossing and turning at night, when I tell myself, okay, I'm going to deal with it, you know, and then I get a better sleep. Mm-hmm. And if it's three things I have to deal with, I'm like, oh, I did this. Oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, maybe I, the way I asked this person that, it could have came off really rude. I have to talk to that person tomorrow. And I'm going to, and then we actually walk ourselves through a scenario how we're going to do it. That's a certain type of muhasaba, 
right? Uh, a certain type of uh, accountability that we have on ourselves. But once we tell ourselves and we give ourselves a solution, how we're going to deal with it, then we get a good sleep, right? Mm. Then you can actually, you know, turn to your side and go yeah. to sleep. Yeah. So, but we have to do that with everything, you know? Actually, you know what? I did that. Oh, Moga, you know, me and him, uh, we did this together. Oh, we shouldn't have done that, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's you uh, recognizing and you have to rectify, yeah. right? One thing I noticed with myself when, whenever, for example, whenever I'm playing any sport or something, right? So basketball, sometimes I'll just snap and you know, I'll yell and then the zero to 100 thing. Yeah. Zero to 100. About. It's dude. It's like the craziest thing because, uh, normally like, you know, I'm pretty calm. I mean, I usually don't yell at people. It's just completely out of my nature. And then I'll do it. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, why? <laughs> like, why would I do it? And like, just instantly regret it. Like, yo, my bad dude. Yeah, I didn't mean to yeah. do it. Um, it, it, I don't know. I think it's just, it's but so cool. That, that happens a lot in sports. I, and I see that in me and many other people I've played the sports with. Why do we go from zero to a hundred like that? And that's so. I mean, uh, like I said before, uh, a not being aware. Uh, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. So usually, underneath anger, there's something else going on. Usually, and so one of the main issues, especially with men, that happens uh, with anger is depression. And so I don't know whether you guys are depressed or not. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I can I can tell you that the the people that I've assessed who've had anger have had uh, depression a lot. Very common. So the reason that is uh, the case is because when women get uh, depressed, they'll cry, they'll share their problems. You know, they'll even like look sad so you can tell, like they're, they're able to express it, right? But when we get sad and depressed, we just hold it down. We don't like show it. We just shut down. You know, you can't tell that we're like sad or depressed. Uh, and then we bottle all that, uh, the anxiety, the, the the emotions in there, and then it comes off as anger. And so, but is, is that during, is that the same for sports too? Like, for instance, sports is very competitive, right? And you realize, but, but the beautiful thing about this is that you have to fix some principles if you're lashing out. And I, I'm not just talking about you; it happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. But like during sports, during that competition, that's where I think the clock starts ticking for how patient you really are, mm -hmm. right? Um, but yeah, I, I always found I was always very interested in that. Well, I I always see the most um, extreme version of someone when they're playing sports mm. for example like all of our personalities are magnified a thousand per percent mm. to see someone's patience you'll see that like very clearly like it's very noticeable mm -hmm. you know their irritability their you know uh their demeanor and how they carry themselves everything's very noticeable uh, on the basketball court or on a football field that that's what I saw at least when I mm. play sports. I'm usually able to see someone's character very quickly, and how they carry themselves in their life. Mm. Interesting, mm. Uh, Doctor Fahad. Uh, you know it's hard to talk about depression without talking about drugs. Mm -hmm. um, do you uh, do you prescribe? No, I don't. No, in Illinois, psychologists can, but I I'm, I'm not going to plan not planning on going that route. So, oh you oh you you can. I can. I mean, I have to go back and and get, get some like classes in. Okay. Which I could easily because I have a master's in in science, but uh, I'm not planning on. So you, the therapy you do is just purely through conversation, yes. and um, is that is that as effective? So uh, there's a lot of research behind it. Um, the the easiest way to explain this is if if somebody has a problem, let's say like somebody uh, lost their job, right, and they're going to be depressed. Uh, so the depression will cause, uh, you know, some uh, symptoms to emerge. Or let's say there was a childhood issue, they got abused, and now they're depressed. And then so they're having some symptoms, they can't get out of bed, they can't go to sleep. Um, you know, they're not eating as much, they're, they have low energy. So the drugs will take care of the symptoms, right? They'll, the drugs will give them more energy, being able to get out of bed in the morning, uh, maybe, uh, you know, increase their appetite, whatever. 
but unless they deal with the underlying cause, uh, the medication will stop working eventually. Mm -hmm. So most research out there suggests that uh, therapy itself or therapy in conjunction with the uh, drugs, uh, with the when I say drugs, I mean medications, is the best route uh, for treatment. Oh, okay. And and you're very you're um, very well versed in the study of cognitive behavior therapy. You specialize in cognitive behavior therapy, and just for our listeners. Um, can you just summarize what you do in cognitive behavior therapy and why you feel um, that it's it's a it's a very awesome treatment? Um, you know, it, there could be multiple reasons. I mean, I went to a school which is primarily cognitive behavioral therapy oriented, so maybe that's why I'm that way. Um, so C- CBT basically the the two terms, as it suggests, cognitions and behavior. Uh, it ta- it talks about like thoughts that people have where those thoughts emerge from, uh, what are the underlying schemas that people have as they grow up and they develop, uh, and then how does how do those thoughts affect the person's behavior? Um, so, for example, uh, if a, a person uh, has a low self-esteem and he's always having thoughts like, I suck in life, I can never get things done, then he's never going to take any chances and do anything in his life because it's, it's holding him back. So that's one example. Um, and so, or if a thought is like, uh, you know, uh, you know, my um, my parents hate me or don't love me, then, you know, he's never going to, even if he sees that love, it's, he's never going to be able to reciprocate or actually even accept that. So that's just an example, but that's what it deals with primarily. And so we talk about thoughts related to the self, uh, others and the world, uh, thoughts about the future, um, and then uh, how, how that's affecting the behavior. And we try to work with them. So making them aware of their thoughts, so that goes back to the whole m- mindfulness and awareness. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. So that we, ha- we want the person to become aware of what they're thinking and uh, then be able to catch themselves. So then after a while, they don't need therapy. So to give you an example, like for example, let's say uh, a person is sitting in his office and then his boss calls him and says, come to my office, I need to talk to you, right? Now, if the thought goes through the mind, the immediate thought is, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. You know, well, what's the evidence to that thought? Like, have you been fired before like this? Uh, And the answer is no. Well, what are the chances? Have you done anything wrong? Well, no. Then why are you having that thought, right? Mm. So being able to evaluate that, right? Okay, I have this thought, but you know what? There's no uh, reason for me to think this way. So it's probably something else. Right, and be able to calm yourself down. So that's where we want our clients to be eventually. But initial stage is being able to recognize the thoughts, what the thoughts are, if there's a theme, a pattern, and how those thoughts are affecting the behavior. Mm-hmm. And is it safe to say that uh, CBT is basically you are the one that makes your mood, right? You are the one, if you have a bad mood, it's if you ha- if I should say, if you're kind of in a slump or if you're depressed, it's thoughts that, you allowed to be formed and you're basing uh, your reality off of those thoughts, right? And I, I just want to give an example. Like if you're in a worried state or if you're in a depressed state, everything around you seems gloomy, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Naturally, even though it can be very bright, exactly. right? And if you're very happy and if you're very optimistic and you were saying being very positive because if you're positive about everything, it's very hard for negativity to come in, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're very positive, optimistic about things and giving people excuses of what we're supposed to be doing in the Sharia, um, Everything is happy and you can appreciate little things, right? Even though others may not be appreciating it, right? right? So is it safe to say that cognitive behavior therapy is helping people recognize those things, making them, you know, let them know it's actually not as, as, as drastic as you think it is? Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's all about how we take uh, uh, things into perspective. Uh, one example that came to my mind when you were talking was, I teach developmental psychology, so we were talking about, um, you know, kids getting beaten up. Right. And, you know, I grew up in Pakistan from, you know, up until 10 years old, uh, fifth grade. 
You know, I got my fair share of the beating from school. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't traumatized by it. I'm not, like, negatively affected by it. I don't have any... But but that same amount of beating, if a kid, somebody here got it, yes. you know, he would be more sensitive. Because, again, the environment, the way you perceive it. And so that's, uh, that's like, one example, right? Like, here, because there's a sensitivity to the topic, it's not allowed. Um, you know, kids are more sensitive to that. In Pakistan, yes, it's true. It's their kids are still sensitive and you shouldn't beat them. So I'm not saying it's okay to beat your child. <laughs> but, you know, it's just a different environment. And, and people get out of there and they're perfectly fine. Like, you know, like not a big deal. Everybody got beaten up and so did I, you know. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. Just the environment plays a huge role. Yeah. yeah. How does, um, what kind of therapy do you use to work with addictions? I think a lot of Muslims, at least on like Reddit and whatnot, from what I see, are str- struggling with like sexual addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of therapy do you use for that? So uh, it depends on why they're doing it, right? Um, you know, addictions uh, could be because, like, say, for example, you you grew up in an environment and you, um, you know, peer pressure and you got into it or you got too exposed to, say, like pornography and you just kind of became addicted to it. So you have to identify what the reason is. Sometimes it might be anxiety problem. You know, somebody has a lot of anxiety and they need to relieve their anxiety and they get addicted to a certain, you know, substance or behavior addictions. Sometimes people might have like OCD and that's like, you know, causing that to kind of, it's coming out as some sort of like an addiction. Um, and so identifying what it is, then can then we can kind of treat it, right? Um, so just addiction on itself, uh, you know, it's treatable, but uh, it depends if you go to like a, a addiction counselor, they'll do their like 12 steps and identify the triggers and do this and that. Um, there's a whole programs out there. As a psychologist, I try to look at what the underlying cause is. Um, you know, for example, I have one client now who never in his life was ever like addicted to pornography. I think he watched it like maybe, you know, a couple of times when he was young. And then now in his marriage, he's addicted. Uh, and so his big issue was because he wasn't, he did, he felt that he wasn't being fulfilled by his wife. And, you know, so that was the reason why he went into that and became addicted. So identifying that really helps. Yeah. And sometimes, sorry, and sometimes okay. people have an addictive personality too. So some people just get addicted to different things. So it's, if it's not pornography, it'll be drugs. If it's not drugs, it'll be watching TV. If it's not TV, it's what, playing video games with their phone, whatever it is, they'll just, they'll just get easily addicted. So uh, now you identified something very important that getting to the root cause, right? Now, a lot of people, especially in our community, they don't, they're not very comfortable coming to a, a therapist or psychologist for these kind of things. What can, what are the first steps they can take in order to get to the bottom of this, at least if, if they absolutely will not go to a therapist, there's no convincing them. You're talking about people who are addicted or oh, yeah, yeah. Pe- people who are addicted. Yeah. Whether people. I think either whether they're addicted or they need counseling or yeah. how do they even, how do they even start cure if they have to by themselves? You know, I mean, the first thing you have to recognize is that you have a weakness, a problem, yes. right? And if you don't recognize a problem, then you can't really work towards a solution. So if they realize that, look, I have a problem, and I'm not haven't I've tried these things and I haven't been able to overcome this problem, you know. Then I need to get help, right? I mean, that's the most logical uh, thing that everybody has, right? Like, let's say you have back pain, you take Tylenol and it it, it doesn't fix it, you know. Now days go by, you're gonna say I gotta go see my doctor because I have this pain that's not going away, and I've tried different things, you know. Uh, so if a person is not able to get through that process. You know, sometimes I, we have people like uh, the parents will bring their child in or some family members will course somebody else to come in. And these people don't want to be in therapy. You know, they just they're like, I, I don't have a problem. They're either in denial or they don't want to change. There's a whole model. It's called the 
um, the uh, Prochesca and De, De Clemente were the two researchers. There's, it's called a model of change, I believe. And it talks about different stages of change that you could be in. So you're in, in, in the contemplation, uh, preparation, action, maintenance, and there's something else. Pre-contemplation, I think, is the one before that. And so if you're not in the right state of mind, you're not going to get any help. You see what I'm saying? So uh, I had this one kid, for example, come in and uh, he, his uh, uh, sisters and mom used to bring him in. And so first session, he's there, like he's not talking. Second session, he says, you know what? I don't want to be here. I'm just here because my parents brought me here. I said, okay, fine. You know, just sit there. You don't have to talk. You know, whenever you're ready, I'm here. And so the whole session, he was quiet. The third session, he just came. He took a nap. You know, after 15 minutes, I woke him up and he left. And then he didn't come after, <laughs> he didn't come after that. You know, so you know, that was the thing. I mean, like I, I told his mother, I'm like, I can't do anything. He doesn't want anything. He doesn't want change. He doesn't recognize he, have a pro- he has a problem. Yeah. But if person recognizes it, I think this is time when you realize, you know what? I need to go to somebody. I need to, like, I need some help. Um, and then, you know, find those who are trained. Yeah, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, very, in a clear manner says, ask the people of knowledge or a specific field, you know, if you don't know. So once you recognize that you have an issue um, and you know that there's specialists available that take care of that, it becomes binding upon you as a Muslim, as your relationship with your creator, because these things can can go uh, and it go in the wrong direction very fast. That if you're having an issue, like for if you're being sad, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah rahimahullah talked about being sad and talked about being sad for too long can be a sin upon yourself because you're not going and getting that uh, that help when people are readily available. Why? Because sad is one of those things that have no, being sad has no benefit. All it does is convinces you and it takes you away from your creator, mm. right? And it ha- makes you have negative ta- negative thoughts Towards your creator. Mm-hmm. So sadness has no benefit. But we have to realize, believers, we're always going to be in a time where we're sad. That's why we talk to one of our friends. Or, but if it is at any level, we should be very comfortable with our iman to go and talk to a therapist, mm-hmm. right? It actually can be an, an act of ibadah. It can actually take you away from certain branches of atheism, mm-hmm. right? And in certain levels. So, so for the listeners out there, we have to understand that stigma and that taboo has to be removed. And it's actually a way of getting closer to your creator uh, of going to a therapist, yeah, you know? Definitely. And maybe even better if you go to Fahad Khan. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that being said, there's, there's, a, there's something uh, awesome that I, uh, that I was uh, kind of working with, a model that I follow, and I just want you to verify it with me if you think that it's actually um, it has some legitimacy. Um, you know Abdul Sadar Ahmed, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome yeah. guy, mashallah. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, he had a conversation with me about the word why. Okay. You know, W-H-Y. And ever since then, I was doing the research and I've been asking people about it. And there's there's some hadith that I would refer to also. But he told me that in counseling, you would, you it, the worst thing you could do is ask somebody why. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you're challenging somebody, right? And when I uh, started doing research about that, and obviously certain times why is actually if you're asking your teacher, you know, if you're ambitious about something, asking why is a good thing. But if somebody comes to you and said, you know, I committed this or I did this and this, and you ask them why, when they're coming to you for help, you're actually challenging them, right? And the beautiful thing, and this led me uh, to the path of uh, Anas bin Malik radiallahu anh, where he would say that, uh, where he said that my mother at a young age, at the age of six, Bought me to Muhammad Sallallahu so I can be the servant of Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right? So he said, Anas bin Malik, he said that 
Rasulullah would ask me to do certain tasks and I would forget about those tasks. He would ask me to give something to somebody. And what would happen was, what would happen is that I would go and start playing with the kids. Because I was six years old, seven years old, you know? And I'd completely lose track of what he asked me to do. And he, Sallallahu Alaihi would come looking for me. And he would find me. And one thing about Sallallahu Alaihi he would never say to me, why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? He would always say, it would be better if you did this. It would be better if you didn't do that. Right? And... When I would reflect upon that story of Anas bin Malik, radiallahu anh, I, found, I found that so amazing that even with a child, sallam, number one, he went looking for him. He's got prophethood to worry about. Mm-hmm. He's got the world to worry about. And he goes looking for this child who's playing with other kids. And the tarbiyah that he would do, would the, the one main thing that Anas bin Malik remembered is that he would never ask me, why did I do this? Or why didn't I do that? That's one of the main things he remembered about him. And he is the longest living Sahabi. You know, Muhammad did dua for him to give him a long life. He lived to around the age of 120, which is why in some uh, writings of Imam Hanifa, where he said that I met Anas bin Malik, you know, at a very old age. Um, so is it actually that true that asking the question why? You know, and I try to refrain from it. I try to refrain, you know, but um, does it actually have that much of an impact in, in cognitive behavior therapy? I mean, it depends on the the rapport that you have established with the person. Usually, why is not the best question to ask? Uh, so there's two types of questions you can ask in therapy, and generally open-ended and close-ended questions. Right? This is what I'm talking about. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so the close-ended questions are, you know, like, uh, what did you eat for lunch, right? Or, you know, like... Uh, you know, it's just like a straightforward question where there's a yes, no answer, or there's like, you know, usually one answer. The open-ended questions are like, you know, when you're asking the how, you know, uh, or, or even the why sometimes. But the, the, the key is if you ask somebody why, initially they're going to get very defensive, naturally, right? They're going to start coming up with a reason to like, why did I do this? Even though there may not be a reason, or, or maybe they're not aware of the reason. But after a while, I think, like I've had some clients uh, who have worked with, the, you know, for months now. Uh, now I'm comfortable asking them that question and I know they're not going to get defensive because we have that relationship. Mm. They know whatever they say, I'm not going to like judge them for it. Like, oh my God, you really you know, did that because of that? <laughs> um, so I think that's the, the key is if you ask that question to somebody, let's say it's your, your kids, right? And they're doing something. You have to have that openness to like then be able to reciprocate like whatever they say, you don't like get you know offended by it. And so if you, because if you do, then the kid's going to start lying. So generally, yeah, you're right. It's absolutely, you should avoid that question as much as possible. Um, but after a certain level of relationship has been formed, we, we do ask that question. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, for self-improvement, how, do you, how, should people, how should people go about doing that? I mean, how do you find the gaps in... One of your passions, you said you love stripping away the self and trying to find out who you are. Yeah, for myself, yeah. Yeah. Is, there, is that possible for the average person to do or... <laughs> it's a tough question. Yeah. I haven't found my own self yet, so I yeah. don't really know. Well, well, what? What? How do you deal with <laughs> well, something? Can you take us through that journey yet? Yeah. yeah. Well, how do you what deal with it? something you don't? You find that you don't like after you're stripping away layers of yourself, and you find you find out something you don't like about yourself, and you're, like, you're really troubled by it. And we're not asking you to get totally yeah. personal. Yeah, no, no, that's but, fine. That's fine. I but mean, it's very intriguing to, to the, you know. So uh, I'm going to talk about my other passion, Iqbal, right? I'm going to bring him in here. Bring it in. Because I bring him in on every conversation that I have usually. Uh, in one of his uh, couplets he talks about, he says, you know, take a dive into your own self and figure out who you are. And he says, uh, if you can't be honest with me, that's fine. At least be honest with your own self. 
right? Meaning, hmm. uh, recognize your own self, who you are, and be honest with that portion. So if you find out that there's a weakness that you have, at least you're recognizing that weakness, and now you can work on it. What we t- tend to do is we try to cover everything up and fool our own selves, thinking like, oh, you know, I don't have this problem. Like, I'm, I don't have an addiction. You know, yeah, I'm, I can control my, you know, my impulses. And then while doing so, we end up making mistakes and going in, setting ourselves up for some traps. You know, when shaitan will come in and set a trap and we're like, oh, yeah, I can handle it and go in. And then it turns out we can't handle it. Um, so for me uh, personally, uh, you know, again, uh, just a few days ago, there's a, a, a brother from YM. He came and he said, I want to, for his English class, he's like, I want to interview you. I'm like, all right, it's like completely random. Uh, and he's like, you know, who is Fahad Khan? And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, honestly, I'm still trying to figure out who this, I mean, yes, I'm a psychologist. I'm a husband. I'm a you know son, a father. But I don't know who I am. Like, I, I have not figured out what I'm supposed to do, uh, what I'm good at. I mean, I, I do clinical work. I start teaching. I like teaching. I do research. I like research. Ten years from now, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. What if I'm not even a psychologist? I don't know. Like, I haven't figured that out yeah. yet. But if I can direct that question a little bit, when you when you say, I don't know who I am, and I think um, what you mean by that is you you need to research yourself more. But what angle uh, are you, are you um, you know, are you trying to tackle that from? Meaning, what is your role? What are you meant hardwired to do? What are you meant to do? Or what effect are you supposed to have in this life? Or do you mean, I don't really know myself because there's so many things I do and I don't know why I do it. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's both. It's okay. a little bit of both. It's recognizing who you are. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you think a certain way? You know, um, and then on top of that, what am I supposed to do in this world? Like, what's my duty here? You know, what, what, are, we, what are we meant to do? We know what, what the bigger picture is here, right? But there's things that you do to get to there. Like, we know that we're supposed to eventually meet with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But like, why am I doing everything here? You know, like, what's the purpose of prayer, for example? Right? Just the other day, I was thinking about this, and I shared, shared this with the, uh, a friend of mine. Um, you know, I was, I was standing in prayer. And it's funny because I was thinking about this in prayer. So Allah forgive me for that. <laughs> but um, I'm thinking like, okay, so in prayer, we're supposed to uh, imagine or pretend that we're uh, having a conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? He created us all, everybody. And then, but while in prayer, we still have to be mindful of our surroundings. Like if somebody's trying to cross you, I think certain madhahib, you can even stop them from crossing you, right? If somebody taps you on your shoulder, you go back, you know, to a different stuff. So you're not like completely away from the physical world, but you're still supposed to be away from the physical world. Like it's, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Then I'm, then I realize I'm like, you know what? Maybe this is the connection. Maybe salat is what connects the physical with the metaphysical because you're constantly jumping back and forth. You're imagining Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're talking to him, and then a kid runs in front of you, you're like start trying to stop him, right? Or somebody mm-hmm. taps you, you go back and start, you know, or somebody starts crying or gets hurt. Or your mother calls you and praying nafil and you're supposed to break and, and answer to her, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're going Wait, back really? and forth. Really, well, you're supposed to break in nafil prayer, in nafil right? prayers, nafil, yeah. not in front of you. Yeah, I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a constant connection, right? You're going back and forth, back and forth, and um. So I don't know why I'm talking about this. Oh yeah, so everything that we do, right? There's a there's a purpose behind. It. There's a bigger picture there. What is that? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, mm. why are we doing all this? Like, why do we pray? Why do we have to give zakat? You know, what's the purpose of fasting? We know the the different, like it's sunnah, it's, you know, hakam. I, I completely accept that. I'm not questioning that part. But there's another purpose behind it, and I'm trying to figure that, that out. That, the answer to that changes over time, though, right? Because I remember, um, you know, my younger my younger self, I mean, complete idiot. <laughs> but, um, you know, now that I'm older, the like my purpose or my goal in life, everything is constantly changing. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, 
for to me it's it's for the better i think but um but you know that's also i think subjective right i mean to everyone it's, it's a little different um i think it's actually that's actually a really cool question um i was listening to this podcast about uh not too long ago uh it was a, it was a it was a rogan podcast and he had this guest uh his name was dr amit uh, Goswani. uh the guy himself is uh he's a physic quantum physics right that's what he does one time he's talking he said uh people have these certain feelings like you know when you're depressed or when you're sad or when something happens to you he's like why does that feeling happen right Nowadays, all they do is, you know, if you're depressed, you know, they give you antidepressant, whatever. It just covers up, right? It just kind of covers the feeling, whatever, it just so you can kind of go about doing what you're doing. He says something very interesting. He said, find out why you feel that way and change it. Do something about it, right? And I think that's one of the coolest things. I remember, like, before, um, you know, like, you know, there's certain phases. I mean, I'm young, whatever. So there's certain phases you go through where you don't pray. And then you're just like, you're like dude, what am I doing like, like really, it's like, what is, what is my purpose and everything? And, um, and you start feeling like, you know, there's a certain emptiness. Um, you know, for example, let's say you take a test, whatever, and you fail, right? What do you do? You study for the next one, right? So you don't fail. So in that respect, I think when it comes to you as a person or just growing up, I think it's important to kind of stop, ask yourself why, mm-hmm. figure out what's going on in your life. I mean, Hey, is it, is it the people around you? Um, is your environment, whatever it is, and then change it. I think I think that's that's really important. But is that is that something you need to do with with the help of a psychologist, or can you yourself fix that? No, I mean everyone's capable. So a psychologist doesn't come in and fix people like that. We oh. we help facilitate the process of change, right? So we're so the person has the capacity to change. They just kind of don't know where to begin and how to move through that process. And we kind of just guide them through. Mm. So yeah, everybody has the ability to do that. You know, Insan, you know, last one has created is, is the best of creation. And so we have the capacity to recognize like uh, ourselves, our, our surroundings, why we're doing certain things, and then be able to change ourselves. But sometimes we get stuck in certain things. Like there are certain things that hold us back. Sometimes you get, mm-hmm. you get comfortable. You get comfortable. I mean, um, change is hard. You know, making a change is hard, especially like uh, like a big life change, especially if you're going to change, you know, your friends or the people you hang out with. I mean, it's it's tough. Mm-hmm. Um, as some, I totally, uh, I totally see. Yeah, and sometimes we hold our like guilt holds its back, you know, and so people come to us and you know we talk about forgiveness. You know, like listen, you know, you did something wrong, but there's such thing as forgiveness. You know, I mean, I'm I've committed so many sins in my life, and you know. Um, I'm sure there's somebody's hearing me right now and I've heard them. Please <laughs> forgive me. You know, uh, honestly, like being able to forgive yourself, being able to forgive others, you know, you make mistakes, you have to ask Allah subhanahu for forgiveness and then you move on. Mm-hmm. But some people can't do that. And so well, somebody else can come and guide them sometimes. A lot of us are in like yeah, Indian Pakistani background. We have a lot of uh, a guilt culture within our, how, I guess it maybe is from parenting or it could be from friends. I can't exactly pinpoint where it's coming from, but I can really sense it more in Indian Pakistani families than any other cultures, at least from my own ex- experiences. How how do how do you deal with people who come to you and saying, I'm always feeling guilty about something. I want to get beyond this. Um, so the E word and empathy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like they, they, they'll, they will uh, take care of a lot of the guilt and shame that people feel. Where does it come from? I mean, parenting, you're right, it does play a role. There's a whole model on on, uh, psychosocial development, and one of the stages is initiative versus uh, shame. 
um, uh, autonomy versus shame, initiative versus guilt. And so uh, ages three, four, kids go through that stage where if they don't become autonomous or, or learn to take initiative, they're going to form shame and guilt, right? And that has to do with parenting. So the parents don't let, in, let them do whatever they want. Then they can never get that done in life because they're always feeling guilty or shameful about it. Uh, so uh, empathy is one, you know, being able to say, you know what, it's, you know, I understand you're feeling this, you know, like this feeling, but let's talk about where it's coming from, right? What's making you feel this way? Um, you know, were you always this way? When did you first start feeling that way? So being able to recognize where it's coming from and then have them challenge those thoughts, right? So for example, if somebody feels guilty about getting married because they have a pornography addiction, right? So now it's like, okay, well, you have identified the problem, you're working towards it. Um, you know, what's the guilt? Is it guilt that you're not going to uh, like you, you, you feel like you're going to hide it from your wife? Well, maybe you could let her know. Maybe there's somebody out there who's not going to be, you know, who might be accepting of it. Uh, is the guilt that you won't be able to um, that, you know, you won't be able to be sincere with your wife because of the effects of pornography. And, you know, then let's uh, let's work on that issue. Right. So whatever issue it is, we can work on it and, and we can make some progress in it instead of just feeling guilty and holding ourselves back. You know, for subjects like that, for um, for pornography, for drugs, and everything, it's a you know in the Islamic community, it's some that's never talked about. It's never talked about, and if somebody does talk about it, it's like, oh man, what's he saying? Even right now, I mean, even even the fact that you kind of bring it up, it's kind of like it's like, ooh, you know, it's taboo. Um, what can we do that as a you know as a group as Muslims? I mean, it's it's something that has to be talked about. I mean, you can't keep you know brushing under the carpet. I mean, it has to be talked about eventually. Yeah, and, so it's it's a very common problem. I can tell you that a very common problem. Uh, I mean, almost everybody who's coming through my door, whether the problem was marital related, whether it was, you know, anxiety for something else, social anxiety, uh, it, the uh, one of the common associated problems was pornography addiction. And so what we have to do is, um, you know, recognize it as a problem. And then again, be able to go seek help. You know, like if you find if a person and I've seen some really, really bad cases where somebody was watching pornography for like six to eight hours a day. You know, oh you know, God. versus versus somebody who was just, you know, maybe watching it for like, you know, once every like three days or something. Right. For like five minutes. Um, but uh, whatever the case, if it's that bad, you, you realize like, oh, this is a problem. Like, I'm, you know, I, I'm not able to function and I'm constantly my whole day revolves around this. I need to go get some help. And also uh, uh, for for parents and other people to recognize that, look, we can't expect our children to live in this environment where there's everything is so sexualized, right? From like very early on. And then like, you know, we expect so much from them. And so like in Desi culture, like parents won't, you know, think about, talk about marriage until like you're 30, you know, mm -hmm. 28, 30. I mean, I remember when I, when I met my wife, um, you know, I told my parents like, I want to marry this girl. My dad's like, well, let's wait till you, you know, uh, go to medical school. And I'm like, by the way, I'm not going to medical school. <laughs> it's probably a good time to break that to you. But you know, like that was the thing. And I was 24 at the time. Um, but alhamdulillah, I got married when I was 26. Um, but, um, you know, the point is that we can't have that, uh, you know, like expect people living in this world where it's so readily available. Kids are getting exposed to it at eight, seven, eight easily, you know, in schools, even earlier. Um, and then they're going to keep watching it. And, you know, these Muslim kids can't have girlfriends and they can't have sex. And then, you know, now they go off and they're supposed to go through and finish medical school in age 35. Now they're getting ready to get married. You know, uh, I mean, of course, they're going to get addicted. Like, what, what do you really expect? Mm -hmm. Right. So this is something that we all have to recognize. What, uh, what would you tell parents to do? So it's it's one of those it's really hard to talk about. I mean, I can't imagine my dad talking to me about that or me talking if I had a kid talking about it. I mean, it's just it's it's tough. Yeah. You guys you guys are parents, man. 
I mean, um, not even that. I mean, just I'm talking about just drugs in general. When you say that, like, if you're talking about like a kid who already has a problem, or like, like, how do you begin the conversation? Or I mean, how do you address it as a community? I mean, it has to start somewhere, right? I think we to... have to get our kids married early. Maybe I, 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 that's the only way I'm trying to think of how uh, I would handle it with, with my son. Right, what about drugs then? Um, you got to take the <laughs> drugs are a whole other ball game. Yeah, but right? drugs are not. It's not really shameful to talk about. I mean, it's not I mean, because of the culture. It's not. There's no. Too, there's not too much embarrassment about. Telling kids about drugs and telling them to be aware of drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to you know things of sexual orientation, it becomes a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's many ways of, of of talking to your children without because the, the reason why is we're we're so used to anything that's sexually oriented is almost being you know borderline blasphemous. Yeah, but you have to understand that the way Islam sees. Uh, uh, sexual relations is actually a certain type of nobility because you're going through it in a certain way. So if it's taught in a noble way, uh, taught in an honor type way, it's it kind of diffuses, I think, some of that embarrassment and the taboo uh, aspect of it. And I'll give you an example, right? Uh, the way, and this is, I, my daughter was five years at the five years all the time. And as far as marriage is a concern, because this is when the whole gay marriage thing came out. And so, we have to teach our children that there's a halal way of getting married and a haram way of getting married, right? And if you can explain this to a five-year-old, you can explain this to anybody, I think. So I was telling my daughter, I said, men dating women before marriage is not allowed in Islam, right? Boyfriend and girlfriend, that's not allowed. You have to be married in order to touch a woman and hug your woman and hug your wife and or husband, right? She said, yeah. I said, a man marrying a woman is a halal marriage, right? And she was like, what do you mean halal marriage? I was like, that's the way it's supposed to be done. It's actually a type of ibadah. It's a type of worship. Or she said, yeah. And I said, do you know there's something called a haram marriage? And she said, really? I said, yeah. What if a man was to marry a man? That's haram. She said, man can marry a man? I said, people are starting to do that. And I said, a woman marrying a woman is haram. That's not a halal marriage. Uh, she said, oh my God, people do that too? I said, yeah. But in Islam, men are only allowed to marry women and women are only allowed to marry men. And that is what Allah wants. We have to keep Allah happy, right? So now they understand halal and haram. They don't associate it with always oh, disgusting or whatever the case may be. And, you know, they don't even have to relate it to anything else. At a young age, if you teach them what is pleasing to Allah, that's what they're going to do. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dislikes, that's what they're going to stay away from, right? And it takes all type of embarrassment out of it. You don't have to talk about details. But when they get older, there's certain ways to talk about details too, but you have to talk about it in a very noble way. And one thing you have to understand is kids, they see everything, uh, whether it's, even if you don't have a TV and you have YouTube and you're seeing the commercials, they see people hugging and kissing. Like even mm-hmm. Cars, the movie, which is the animated movie, what business does a, ha- a car have kissing another car? Like what is that? What is that trying to tell you? Um, what business does it is it that a girl she sees a guy in a cartoon? It's something we have to think about because we're taught behavior through through projections, right? Mm-hmm. What? Why is it there even in, a, in an animated film that a girl she sees a guy and she starts blushing right away and she starts talking about him with her friends? I mean, why is that even there? Like, what is being taught to them? It's taught to them how to behave around guys. Oh, this guy's cute. Oh, this girl's cute. And it kind of breaks the ice for them it's on how to do it. It's a conditioning. It's a conditioning. Thank you. 
That's that's a perfect word. It's a conditioning. Mm-hmm. It's teaching you how to act in that situation. So when you see a guy that's good looking or you see a girl that's good looking, then you know how to act. You're going to have a certain demeanor composure, whether it's blushing or looking at them but or looking at them directly in the eye or winking at them, whatever the case may be. We're taught all of those things. So we have to race and let them know that, listen, this is a... This is very disliked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you know, there's, there's lots of research out there on how to talk to your kids about sex and how to talk to your kids about the opposite gender. There's many awesome uh, 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 things on there online that you can find on YouTube, an Islamic way of talking to your mm-hmm. kids about sex, you know. Yeah, um, I think the key is having a conversation with the kids yes. and not shutting them down, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's drugs or whatever it is and not reacting to it, right? Uh, you know, when I was uh, f- uh, fifth grade, I first learned about, you know, all this. And this was here in America or sixth grade, actually. And, uh, you know, I learned about the whole reproductive system. And, and I come home and we're sitting at dinner and my mom and dad are there. And I'm like, you know, I learned this today. And, you know, like, you know, when this, the cells from the father come in and and my parents freaked out. My mom was like, you know, you don't like what's wrong with you. You're sitting here talking about this with your parents. You know, I never talked to them since then about that. Um, and, uh, you know, so the point was that, I mean, they're, they're more like Desi and, and I get it. I'm not blaming the humble that, you know, it didn't cause any issues with me. But having a conversation with the kids, the, I feel like uh, a relationship between father and a son and mother and daughter should be like very open and clear, just like friends. You can go talk about whatever and not expect like punishment or some kind of reaction. And oh my God, like if I said this to him, is he going to like punish me? You know? Mm-hmm. And so, I think with parents, it's our choice. Either they're going to learn it from their environment in whatever way they want, or they're going to learn it from their parents, people that they mm-hmm. love, right? Exactly. Today, and you, you make the choice. We have to make the decision, right? Exactly. I saw this picture today. Is uh, you know, one of those like small cartoon, uh, those little ads. And it was a. Uh, this this dad he's in a room and his little kid is on a computer and the dad says uh you know there's a bubble it's like it's like son we have to talk about sex and the kid turns around he says sure what do you want to know <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. you know it's funny but i, I you know it's it's kind of like they're surrounded by it they yeah. know everything you just have to let them know how to be noble about it you know? yeah exactly right. um you know one thing you re- you did that was really cool is you know um at the mosque where you were going through the uh, uh the you know that book on hadith and you were talking about uh when you know rasulullah was 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 making wudu with uh, aisha yes and um and you know you said some parents uh they said you shouldn't talk about it or something yeah no it was about about ghusl right yeah, ghusl. They, you know they even that they used to do ghusl out of the same vessel mm-hmm. um and some people when they talk about that they actually the reason why i said that was i mentioned that hadith before which is in bukhari where aisha radiyallahu an she said that when muhammad sallallahu would do ghusl, we would do ghusl together from the same vessel. Somebody got angry at me, said, why are you talking about Muhammad Sallallahu doing ghusl with his wife? That's not something you should talk about, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, what are you, there's little kids here, and, 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 and just that thought of, I think what you were talking about is that false sense of shame that's not even supposed to be there, embarrassment exactly. that's not even supposed to be there, right? So it's kind of, and this is where cognitive behavior therapy, maybe you could help me out on this, but it's making a barrier that's not even existent because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, through His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa wanted us to have this information because it's a healthy life to ha- to, to take a ghusl with your wife if you yeah. need to, um, and to take a ghusl uh, generally. There's so many benefits we can derive from that. But there's nothing to be ashamed about, you know, especially if Rasulullah wants us to know this information, right? Um, but we, we build up these barriers and we consider it to be shame, but it's not the right type of shame. 
Yeah. Right? Do you understand right. what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know if I'm philosophizing or getting confusing, but we, we make our own barriers of what's right and wrong sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it affects the way that we learn the deen. Mm-hmm. God forbid that that becomes an obstacle for many people. Then they're not even going to want to talk about that in public. And anything that's in the Quran and in the Hadith, we talk about it in a noble way. We talk about it in a very honorable way. Um, you you know, know, a lot of Muslims, I noticed their, their understanding of shame is more similar to Christianity's understanding of shame. Where talking about sex itself is taboo. You're 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 a perv. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, every time uh, that that subject comes up, you can easily get that label, and it'll, you'll be walking around with it your whole life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's yeah. true. The way you explained it was actually really cool. Um, the way you told the hadith and everything, um, I thought it was really nice. And I and I and I think it is something that needs to be talked about. I think it's, it's I think it's important because I mean. If if my dad ever tried to talk to me about that today, <laughs> forget that. You probably turn happen. around. You probably did kid turning around the chair. And be like, what do you want to know? <laughs> what do you want to know? I got, got Sheikh Amri teaching me. What do you want to know? <laughs> I, I know we're kind of uh, running out of time. Just yeah. a quick thing, because we would definitely want to have you again. Um, I was uh, uh, researching something on dopamine resistance, right, and why it's actually very challenging. Um, and how pornography addiction can be more addictive than some drugs because of the dopamine uh, spike that individuals get from pornography actually molds them and kind of rewires them. And I was in Egypt and I was reading about uh, this one article that was on Al Jazeera about the rewiring of the human brain through pornography. That's what the name of the title was. If any of you guys want to look that up, inshallah. But it was mentioning that the dopamine spike that occurs through pornography gets so high and so consistent that that dopamine spike will not occur uh, when you are with a human being when it's supposed to occur, right? Because dopamine is the the chemical or the, the in our in our brain that makes us happy or pleased, right, or satisfied. Um, so the human being now, when he is with another human being and the body's not functioning the way it's supposed to be, and the only time the body is functioning is through pornography, is because one of the, it may be a theory, I don't know, maybe you could help me out, but the, the dopamine uh, levels get so high at that time that nothing else satisfies it. Mm-hmm. So anytime somebody's even down, uh, they use that as an upper kind of, mm-hmm. right? Because there's no other drug that's helping them. So there's actually a detox that's supposed to be done and a certain type of therapy, just like any drug, uh, that's supposed to be taking place, you know. Um, so I find that very interesting. I don't know if I'm wrong or if I'm exaggerating. No, no. I mean, anything. with with any addiction, whether it's chemical or behavioral, um, especially with chemical uh, or even medication, let's talk about that for a second. There's two concepts that you have to remember. One is called dependence, and one is tolerance. Mm. Right. So if you keep using something, you're going to become dependent on it. So if it's uh, pornography and you're getting that dopamine spike. Now, mind you, dopamine is that feel-good drug, right? That makes you feel like uh, the pleasure, right? And if you go think of it psychologically, uh, you know, Freud, for example, uh, talks about how sex uh, is like the most basic component of pleasure, the the source of human pleasure, right? So you're getting like like the the best form of pleasure that you can by watching pornography or close to it. And so you're going to start becoming dependent on it, 
right? Your body becomes dependent because now it's getting used to it. The other thing is called tolerance, which means your body will become tolerant towards it. So you need more of it to get the similar effect. Mm -hmm. And this is why people like nobody starts out watching pornography out of nowhere. Usually it starts out with something small, you know, light, and it goes into like heavy. And and then people talk about like the the one client who, who comes from a far away, you know, he's told me about how he's watched like some really weird stuff like that's out there, you know, Stuff for like, I mean, I don't even want to say it because I, who knows who's listening to this, but some really like nasty stuff that you couldn't even imagine. Why? Because he wasn't getting pleasure out of something that was like, you know, normal yeah. sex. And so then it, it distorts the image in your mind of what sex is about. So when you're with your own, you know, wife or husband, um, you know, you, you're my, in your mind, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what you're expecting. This is what gives you pleasure. And what you get is a reality, which is sometimes not, you know, different. Exactly. Uh, and that's why, it, you know, people have difficulty sometimes. That's awesome. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah. It is awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I want to wrap up this, uh, this podcast. Sure. Uh, what do you want to leave us with? Is there anything you want to say? Um, I mean, uh, I think uh, one thing that was brought up was uh, parenting. Uh, a few uh, few weeks ago, I made a, a, a Facebook post on like parenting, and I said, uh, you know, over ninety percent of the problems in society are due to poor parenting. And you know, some people were offended by it, so I deleted it. But um, you know, I just want to emphasize the importance of parenting. So, for those who are parents, uh, for how those- could someone be offended by that? I'm sorry. Because, well, because they felt like uh, so, like some of the psychological problems out there are. Not like a person can be born with it, like developmental disorders. So like how can a parent be responsible for that? I wasn't talking about that. That's why I See, said over 90%. But just, in any case. Yeah, you can't let the <laughs> those guys, they're always out there ready to hate on you. for. They're just waiting for the catchphrase. I'm sure they can find 10 different things we've said in this podcast where they can completely take, take it out of context. Yeah. And just try to hang someone. Yeah, but I want to emphasize the importance of parenting. I mean, it's really essential for us to recognize, especially as parents, why do we do the things that we do, right? So there's a lot of good books on it. There's one book in my office, I forgot what it's called. It's called Parent-Child Relations, I believe. And it's by Muslim. uh, uh, It's a really awesome book. But there's a lot of good books. You can get parent training. You can come to a therapist for that as well. Um, You know, but but becoming good parents is, is a key here. Um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, like I said, my, my recent passion has been working with these kids who went to madrasas. And the themes that emerge from working with these kids, I have these three kids that I'm working with. Man, like it goes down to parenting, basically. Um, you know, why do parents send their kids to become hafiz? You know, a lot of times they're like, oh, you know, it's, this is great. It's usually for their own reasons. Like, And these kids, they're, now they're saying things like, oh, my, my father manipulated me or my parents were selfish. You know, they did this for them and, and made me think it was, I was doing it for myself. That's just one example. But even drug use, even like pornography, all that, you know, it, it comes down to how good a parenting that we can do. I feel like if, if we can solve the parenting issue, we would take care of a lot of a lot of bigger issues in, in, out there. Not everything, obviously, but at, at least most of it. So I would definitely say like, you know, uh, in future, everybody, inshallah, is going to be a parent. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, get some help and, and become better at it. Awesome. For those interested, uh, how do they get in touch with you? So you can go to khalilcenter.com. My uh, every information's on there. K H A L I L center.com. Um, and um, you know we we have three offices in Illinois. We do web therapy. So if somebody can't come to the office, you know we can do online uh, counseling within state and out of state. We do consultation. So you know we don't do like therapy for like high risk people. But um, so people can reach you anonymously. 
yeah, on yeah, the internet, and they can talk to you over Skype we, or yeah. No, we have a HIPAA compliant video uh, service that we purchased, and so uh, it's uh, confidential. Obviously, everything that that happens is confidential, even if you're a child. So, like yesterday, I, I did an intake with a child, and the parent was there. So I told the parent, I said, "Look, legally, you have the right to all the information that that's you know that's in here." whatever we talk about. Uh, but until you get a lawyer and try to get there from me, I'm not going to tell you like what we talk about in here because that destroys the purpose of therapy. So mm-hmm. everything is confidential. Um, you know, everything that, uh, that we talk about, um, and remains between us. So, um, you know, I would say just, just try it for those who are like, uh, I think I need a therapist. Just go in and, and have two or three sessions. It won't hurt you. And if you don't like it, you don't have to be there. Uh, but I always tell people, give it a shot. Um, so khalilcenter.com, um, you can also, contact me personally my cell phone number is on the website you know email me whatever works inshallah that's not great people people contact you personally they yeah i get texts all the time you know oh, like, really yeah my friends having that problem or my friends having that problem uh-huh. you know? <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to like you know resolve uh this so you know help me out so yeah all the time may allah reward you for all your efforts man I mean, um, it's not easy and it's it's taxing so may allah make this the reason for you to enter Jannah. I mean, Fahad, please come on as a guest again. There's so many Next other week? topics we Next wanted week? to talk oh, to you <laughs> about. I want to talk about domestic violence. Mm, yeah. I want to talk about protocols. There's lots to talk about. Yeah, yeah. We, we kind of hit up a whole lot of subjects in one podcast, but... Let's focus on something specific next yeah. time he comes on. Yeah, ask the listeners, man. What do they want to hear yeah, from Yeah, for anyone interested um, in any subjects or topics, uh, you know, shoot us a shoot us a shoot us an email or a, a message. Inshallah, we'll have uh, Fahad on. Inshallah, awesome. Uh, Inshallah. He's interested. Uh, we can be reached at themadmamluks at gmail dot com. T h e m a d m a m l u k s at gmail dot com. Um, we also have a Twitter handle at uh, the Mad Mamluks and a Facebook page. Like us, share. Um, please like us. Yeah, <laughs> please like us. Uh, if you have any stories, um, you know, send them out or questions or anything. Please, please feel free to share. Uh, I want to thank you, Doctor, uh, for coming on. Bye, guys. Bye.